Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey listeners, Becky here. A quick content warning before we start. Today's episode contains discussions about films that involve sexual violence, Nazis, and war atrocities. If that's not for you, we completely understand. Join us again next week where we'll look at a movie that involves Diana Ross twirling in rainbows. And now, on with the show. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by film curator and historian Alicia Fletcher and Kayla Janice. Kayla Janice is a film writer, programmer, and producer, and author of several books like House of Psychotic Women, an autobiographical topography of female neurosis in horror and exploitation films. Her first film as a writer-director-producer, Woodland's Dark and Days Bewitched, A History of Folk Horror, had its world premiere at South by Southwest 2021 and won the highly coveted Midnight Audience Award. So, of course, we had to have her on to talk about exploitation films. As we discussed in the TV series, 1975 was a huge year for exploitation movies, especially in Canada. It gets technical, but what you need to know is that before 1967, the only movies in production in Canada, with a few exceptions, were being made by the CBC and the NFB. At the end of the 60s, two things happened. The first is that the national government created the CFDC, the Canadian Film Development Corporation, which would become today's telefilm. The second is that at roughly the same time, a Montreal tax lawyer discovered a loophole that revealed that for every dollar you spent producing a movie, you could reduce your taxable income by 60%. This sudden influx of cash from multiple sources led to a boom in film creation. Some of them were highly lauded, Oscar nominees even, but most of them generously were not good. Then, in 1975, a young upstart filmmaker named David Cronenberg teamed up with Montreal production and distribution company Cinepix to release his debut film, It Came From Within, also known as Shivers. For a debut, it's everything we love about Cronenberg. So, of course, it has really gross body horror. How gross? Well, so gross that critic Robert Fulford wrote a review under the title, You Should Know How Bad This Film Is. After all, you paid for it. He called the film an atrocity, a disgrace to everyone connected with it, including the taxpayers. If using public money to produce films like this is the only way that English Canada can have a film industry, then perhaps English Canada should not have a film industry. And this led to a debate in Parliament on whether or not Canadian films should be funded at all with public money. David Cronenberg was evicted from his apartment, and American Living in Canada super producer Ivan Reitman was almost deported. This was all settled by reducing the amount of government money invested and increasing the tax deduction rate to 100%, but that's a story for another time. Cinepix was one of the companies that really knew how to work the system, and they made and distributed both the films we're talking about today. And although one of them launched one of our most celebrated filmmakers' careers, the other is, well, 
Ilsa She-Wolf of the SS. But before we get into any of that, Kayla, you literally wrote the book, several books, in fact, on exploitation films. What do people love about them, and why do they make so much money? You know, we'll just start off with a nice, easy question. (laughs) Well, you know, exploitation films by nature are exploiting a topic. They're exploiting a subject that's topical. You know, it's something that is tapping into public preoccupations and concerns. Um, And, you know, so and they often do so much earlier than mainstream films do. So when it's considered too soon or too sensitive for mainstream films, exploitation films will kind of dive into them headfirst and do so with this kind of visceral sensibility regarding, uh, you know, shock and pleasure um, that then they're not going to get in other more, you know, so-called tasteful films. But the thing is, they are made to audience demand. You know, and so you can see that in the box office numbers, you can see that in the audience response to the films, and that's what exploitation films are. They wouldn't continue to be made about certain things or in certain styles if the audience was not responding to those things. It's not my particular genre that I enjoy, although I I am the first to admit that I now understand that not for me is different than not good. But a lot of these (laughs) aren't good, but people still love them and they make these massive impacts and are very influential on filmmakers who do go on to make like these Academy Award nominated films and things like that. So there's something in them. People are finding what they need to to be creative out of. It's a lack of a filter is what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ah. It's because in exploitation films, because there's less oversight, there's less budget, you know, so a lot of times you're getting ideas and concepts that are going right from a director's subconscious to you. You know, and there's nobody being like, well, maybe you shouldn't say that or maybe you should rephrase that to, you know, to make it more tasteful. I mean, it's just it's just right there. And often they're not necessarily thinking about a better way to say it or a better way to do it, you know. And so you're you're getting this really unfiltered message or vision from somebody. And that can be really refreshing and exciting to audiences, I think. And I'm sure there's a bums in seats thing as well. It's like, did you hear about this thing? You need to see it because it's so shocking. It's so horrifying. And you go see it and you're like, oh, no, that is really terrible. Why did I spend my money? But they've got your money. (laughs) They've got it already. Having a film banned or, you know, viewed as unwatchable can often sell a lot of tickets. (laughs) (laughs) Still happens today. Well, speaking of band, uh, in 1970, celebrated French-Canadian director Denis Arcand made a documentary for the National Film Board titled En et au Coton about the textile industry in Montreal, specifically about Dominion Textiles, which around that time was one of the largest employers in Quebec. Uh, it was intended to be your standard life in Canada puff piece. However, work in textile mills was heading overseas for production, uh, so the boards of these mills were crushing unions, exploiting workers, and laying off employees by the hundreds. So famous leftist Arkan decided to do something different with his assignment. He said, the film board makes thousands of films to say that all goes well in Canada, that the Western wheat fields are very beautiful, that Glenn Gould plays the piano well, and that Paul Anka is an extraordinary star. So I think it's just normal that there should now and then be a film which says that everything is rotten and that we live in a country that is corruption from top to bottom. Once completed, the film and its shocking interviews with both workers and executives, and that he may or may not have interviewed some members of the FLQ in 1970, was uh, it was banned by the NFB until 1976, when it was released in a censored version. And the full cut wasn't actually available until 2004. So in 1975, what would you do if you wanted to hear real dialogue pulled from this banned film? Well, you'd go see Gina, a movie that is simultaneously about documentarians attempting to make an expose about a 
corrupt textile mill in small-town Quebec, and the assault revenge plotline of a traveling stripper with ties to the Quebec Mafia. Let's talk Gina. <laughs> this movie is bonkers, and I love it so much, but I hesitate to say how much I love it. You, you forgot uh, to say that there's also a snowmobile gang. Yeah. Named Lake Penguin, <laughs> which is wonderful, and they hang out in an abandoned ship. It's amazing, but before we get too far ahead of ourselves, Kayla, why don't you walk us through the brief, brief plot summary of what Gina is about? Well, I mean, it's basically, uh, you know, a stripper who has been working in this small location where this textile mill is, uh, at the beginning of the film, she has been uh, discovered to have like run off with a customer and abandoned her post. And so Celine Lomez, who plays the lead character, Gina, is put in her place, sent to this village uh, where she's going to become the stripper at this hotel. And when she arrives, it's the same time that this crew of filmmakers is arriving from the, the NFB, which is called something else slightly different in the film. Yeah, it's like the, yeah. it's like the Ontario or the, like the, it's like the, the National Federation of Filmmakers. Yeah, something like that. And uh, but it's like one letter different, you know. But um, so this cr- film crew arrives, and she becomes friendly with them, and she even off, you know, works uh, alongside them as a translator, helping them to do interviews with some like Colombian uh, imported workers that are at the mill. Uh, they are working obviously without permits, like on the streets, trying to get interviews with people about um, a union protest, like twenty years earlier that had erupted in violence. Um, and you know, there's, there's these kind of different threads happening, you know, there's this, the people who work in the mill, there's this like snowmobile gang, you know, that come up and they're (laughs) like, Hey, why don't you film us or whatever, you know? And, and so immediately this like friction is set up between the film crew and these various people, you know? So the only people that they have anything in common with really that they align with is Gina, who is coming from the same city as them. They're both coming mm-hmm. from outside and they came from the city and they have something in common. And so they hang out and play pool together and stuff. You know, so you have, uh, you know, th- I've read a lot of comments about this film that talk about it like it's, you know, two different films as though like Denis Arcan's documentary is kind of shoehorned into this mm-hmm. exploitation movie. But I actually don't see it that way at all. I see these different threads as being completely interwoven and that this uh, the strip sequence at the center of the film, because I do consider the strip scene to be the, the center of the film and not the rape scene. Um, yeah. yeah, that strip scene is when all of the insecurities of class and gender and all the hierarchies and stratifications of these little societies, um, they all come into contact with each other in this room. And that is what is going to, result in violence you know this contact Mm -hmm. and and it's yeah it's just kind of an amazing thing how the film is about exploitation it's an exploitation film but it's about exploitation you know and it's not just about the exploitation of the dancer of the stripper Mm -hmm. and what happens to her it's also about the exploitation of the workers and it's also about lateral violence you know it's about like people who turn on their own people because they perceive these small inequalities you know or that you know like the two women who are contrasted in the bathroom doing their makeup and they're talking about how much money they each make there's just all these comparisons that are being set up throughout the film and every character in the film is aware of those comparisons they are making those comparisons themselves you know and at the and at at the top of all of it you have like the big factory the big textile factory and these guys are untouchable you know so it's like Mm -hmm. all the people who are the marginalized people and yet even among all these marginalized people, 
they turn against each other in the wake of yeah. this much larger exploitation that's happening. I, th- you know? I thought a lot about, the, you know, a lot of this film takes place at a motel mm-hmm. where the, you know, the CBC or the NFB crew are staying, where some of the workers live really close to you and where Gina's staying. And you have these two, a married couple that run the hotel, that own it, a husband and wife. And there's a lot of attention paid to the wife character being exploited by her husband as a worker. Mm-hmm. Like she's the basically the maid for the entire hotel. The husband is somewhat complicit in the rape that occurs during this film because he's able to like not stop it and allow the uh, snowmobile gang to break into the hotel room. Uh, and it's just every level of exploitation that you can imagine coming down to like, and I love that you pointed that out, like a dollar amount. Like mm-hmm. that scene in the bathroom between one of the textile workers and Gina talking about how much money they make a week, which is then interspersed with like some of the interviews that the documentary crew are filming um, with dialogue taken, of course, from Denny Arcon's real documentary, where she, this textile worker, just says, "I all I want to do is be able to maybe one day afford a stereo and have um, a vacation in, in Atlantic City," <laughs> yeah. and then it directly cuts to like Gina dancing, which is, I mean, it's a little, it's a little, you know, opaque certainly, <laughs> but uh, I, I loved that. So I love that you don't think of it as two films sh- with like a, a, a documentary shoehorned into another film. I think I agree with you on that for sure. I find it interesting that the tagline is uh, un film à fois humain et brutal. So a, a film at the same time, which is humane and totally brutal. And it is both of those things because you like y- as much as you have to keep your distance from Gina the whole time because she's so closed off and, and has her own thing going on, you are cheering for her when like the terrible, terrible shit goes down. But when the terrible shit goes down everybody's a bad guy so you actually don't know who to root for it's a very conflicting film and I think that's the reason I like it so much is because I don't I still don't know how to feel about it and I've watched it three times now yeah no I am I am a fan and I also think it really supports that you know that thing that people always say about genre films and exploitation films which is that you know they say well genre films can always talk about things that other kinds of films can't get away with and mm-hmm. the case of Denis Arcan is just the perfect example of that because he made three films for the NFB that were either aborted or thwarted, and he turned all three of them into crime films in the 70s. Yeah. You know? So he had like Dirty Money, Rajan Padovani, and Gina are all coming out of documentaries that he had made, and then he wasn't allowed to do them for whatever reason, and so he just took a bunch of that material and put him into these crime films where he could literally point fingers at the exact... Like in Rajan Padovani, you know, it's been commented on that all the different characters are identifiable politicians and construction oh, magnates and stuff like that, like that people at the time would have recognized. Celine Lomez is in that one as well, right? The Celine star Lomez. Dina. She has yeah. a small role in it. It's not a big okay. role, but yeah. I also like the cheap shots he takes at the NFB because the dweeb who works for like their national Canadian broadcasting, whatever, has like the worst facial hair and just kind of shows up with his glasses <laughs> and is like, hey guys, I got to yeah. tell you to stop doing that thing. Yeah, I'm it's... like, oh man, that's such a cheap shot. It's a parody. Yeah. I also love that Denis Arcand's brother plays basically him in the film. These layers are not subtle, but they are definitely there. Same with the fact that the assault scene happens while they play the Canadian national (laughs) anthem. It's like, oh boy, oh boy. Yes, that does occur. All right. Now, Alicia, you saw this for the first time when I was like, we have to talk about Gina. Mm -hmm. It's 1975. Going in for it for the first time, what was your impression? I was shocked that I had never heard of it. And I'm certainly not an expert the way uh, Kayla is with 
genre and it sounds like you know a lot about Denis Arcand. I, I kind of got really invested in the restoration history and looking at all the, all the ways this film has been released throughout the decades or not released. Um, and for me, I, and I think this was, I tried to avoid this, but I had to watch a, a, a sub, like a dubbed version in English. So I couldn't actually watch the French language version with English subtitles. It just wasn't available. And so a lot of things, the, all the nuances that you're both talking about were translated differently in the English version. So like mm. there is no, it's not the NFB. They're actually calling it the CBC. Mm. And there's a line where um, one of the workers is like making fun of the filmmakers. And they're like, look, we don't live off of the CBC funds. Like it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's kind of funny. Well, I think that, I think that line is actually in the French version. Okay, good. So I think good, good, good. that the, yeah, I think there's conflation happening, you know, to the people who yeah. work on the snowmobiles or whatever. They're just like, these things are all the same to them. It's like these artsy yeah. organizations, you know. But I was blown away. I was shocked because, you know, knowing this has been called a rape revenge film and it's it seems to be mentioned a lot, a lot in writing on that canon. It's so different than something like I Spit on Your Grave, which comes later. Yeah. The rape doesn't actually occur. This is about a 95 minute film. It doesn't occur until like an hour into the film, maybe even more so longer. Um, I think you're right, Kayla, when you say like the strip scene is really like the climax of the film in many ways. I felt like everything I'd read about this film going into it was incorrect. And so it's really an honor to talk to you, Kayla, because it's like, okay, this is like the, a voice of reason. Like someone who's actually... <laughs> one, I think a lot of people writing on this film potentially haven't seen it. So when you look at like kind of 70s or 80s Canadian encyclopedias of film, I would question whether the people who wrote those entries saw this film. Yeah. And also I think it has a reputation that it both doesn't deserve, but at least that reputation might get people to actually watch this. Like calling it is very much an exploitation film, but it's also something else. Mm-hmm. I was ca- just captivated by Celine Lomez. Mm-hmm. Had, I mean, I, as soon as I hadn't put it together in my head, I realized, okay, this is actually one of the co-stars of The Silent Partner, which is a film oh, yeah, yeah. I'm super familiar with and love. And her fate in that film is horrible. Brutal. Yeah really brutal god she was luminous and I, doing a little bit of reading on her i was like yes i understand why the producers of charlie's angels were like you are too sexy for this tv show <laughs> and you cannot be we on it Dallas sexy back farrah fawcett's about the level we want to go at you're just yeah. a little too yeah. spicy i think she was auditioning for uh, tanya roberts's role she was a pop star in, yes. in uh, quebec at the same time and she had a hit in 1974 that was louisiana zydeco inspired which is just so delightful to me <laughs> And I love that she and her sister were pop stars all the way up through the 60s. And if you go on YouTube, you can see them perform together and they're amazing. Yeah. yeah like she was like 15, I think, when she was topping the uh, the Quebec charts. So it's, it also means that people watching this film in 1975 in Quebec recognized her sort of as a child star. I think it's more I think it's also very likely they recognized her as one being one of the key people of the maple syrup porn movies. Yeah. 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 Like a, she's in a pre-ski or uh, also a called pre-ski. like I can't remember yeah. the English title it is. It's like snowballing. Snowballing. Snowballance. <laughs> actually, Kayla, that's something I'm actually really glad you brought up because we we probably will not get another opportunity to talk about maple syrup porn. Could you just run us through quickly about what exactly maple syrup porn is? Cinepix as a company had started in the 60s. Um, I mean, I guess if we backtrack just to, to the creation of Cinepix because that will create, you know, lead to that. Yeah. But it's like, so yeah. Cinepix started in the mid 60s. It was Andre Link and John Dunning. They both had come from film backgrounds of some sort. So John Dunning's family had owned movie theaters and Andre Link had come from distribution. And they formed a partnership originally to distribute films. So they were distributing films throughout Canada. When the CFDC was created, they decided they were like, well, we might be eligible for money to actually make our own film. 
you know? And so this is like in the wake of the quiet revolution. So it was like after Duplessis had died and mm-hmm. this kind of more liberal government was brought into Quebec and there was like more, you know, the church had lost the control they had. There was less censorship. There was more, you know, this idea of sexual freedom and this idea emerging of a real like Quebec nationalism and stuff. And so this is a very, there's a lot of change happening in this time. It's a very exciting time. And so they decided to take advantage of this and make a soft core film that also brought in a lot of these elements of like the of society in Quebec at that time. And they made this movie Valerie with Danielle We Met. And it was a huge hit. And so then they continued to make more of these films, you know, so they made that basically started the term maple syrup porn is something retroactively right. uh, used to describe these films. But they were essentially soft core films that were made in Quebec in the wake of the Quiet Revolution uh, in the late 60s and early 70s. Not all of them were serious. A lot of them were comedies like sex comedies, you know, but you would have movies like so Valerie is considered the one that kicked it off. And then there was like. L'Initiation, which also had Celine Lomez, Loving and mm-hmm. Laughing, which also had Celine Lomez, mm-hmm. Deux Femmes en Or, Le Diable et Parmi Nous. There's, these are great titles. Yeah, there was <laughs> just a bunch of these films, and, and it was kind of Cinepix's bread and butter up until the mid-70s when they sort of shifted more to horror. Mm-hmm. As other companies started making similar types of films, they felt like the market was a bit saturated with these maple syrup porn movies, and so they started shifting more to horror, and they had met Cronenberg around the same time, and so they started mm-hmm. kind of nurturing him as an artist. And... Um, but yeah, it's like this unique period in Quebec history where they are these softcore films, but they are infused with a lot of s- sort of social commentary and political content just because of the time they were made. So it's mm-hmm. not, I don't, I was about to say not like Porky's, but Porky's actually does have a lot of uh, social commentary as well. So I shouldn't <laughs> it does. say that. But yeah, I mean, they weren't, the, you know, even the dumb ones, you know, still had like a you know, like a purpose. They were really exciting to people. And I used to run a movie theater in Montreal. And whenever we would play one of these old films, the place would sell out. Everybody knew all the lines, you know, even though these movies were 40 years old, you know, everybody knew every line from Après Ski. And so, and it really is an interesting thing to partake as an outsider from that culture. It's, It's, you know, I always think of myself as the outsider, even though trying to explain to Americans... I'm a dual citizen, a, a Canadian American. Explain to other Americans at film festivals that there are two Canadian cinemas and there's yeah. two kind of Canadian cinematic mm-hmm. histories. And so they'll sometimes be more familiar with Quebecois film than yeah. I am. Because I, I think, in, and I was trying to trace like, okay, how was Gina released in English Canada? And I don't actually see in 1975 that it was. I don't see, I'm sure there, it was in a, like a couple theaters in Toronto, but there wasn't like a wide release of a lot of these films. So I feel like as an English speaking Canadian, I'm looking at these films now yeah. for the first time, they're like 50 years old. And it's as foreign to me as something like a Belgian yeah. film or, you know, a film from sub-Saharan Africa. Um, even though it's my own country's history. Yeah. And it's interesting because I have a friend who is Quebecois who knows a lot about these films. And I remember talking to him once about how I wanted to do a book about like mm-hmm. Quebec cult cinema. And he was like, we don't have cult films. 
And I was like, well, you have this and this and this. And he was just like, those aren't cult films. Those are just the normal films. Everybody watches. <laughs> yeah. And right. I was like, but to me, yeah. they're cult films. And he's like, but they're not. They're yeah. like the most yeah. popular films. <laughs> Sunday Isn't afternoon, throw on Gina. You're good to go. Lay boys, yeah. you know, we'll just watch it with grandma. It's great. Yeah. But it was interesting because yeah. I was obviously coming from this perspective where to me, moving to Quebec for a few years, it was like this floodgate had opened and there were all these films that I had never seen, never heard of. There was this entire industry, you know, and, you know, but to all the people there, I mean, they know all these films so well that yeah. it's often laughable to them when Anglos write about them, you know. And it's only really when you get a crossover director like Denis Villeneuve or like Jean-Marc Ballet or, um, or or even like, oh, dude, he did like Red Violin and 32 short yeah, films yeah. about Glenn Gould. That's another crossover, right? Like you're like, these are Quebecois filmmakers who were working consistently in there. I mean, how many people can see they, say they've seen Crazy? Right. But they definitely know the rest of Jean-Marc Ballet's work, mm-hmm. right? So. I, I definitely watched Crazy two nights ago <laughs> and it is so good. But that, that's so off good. topic. Yeah, yeah. I had never but seen But one it. thing yeah. I, I wanted to mention, though, is that you said at the outset that Cinepix, ha- you know, that they had produced Gina. They did not produce it. They only distributed it. Yeah. So Jill G- Carl's okay. company produced it. Jill Carl, who was the guy who Got made it. like Death of a Lumberjack. And um, he okay. was married to Carol Lore, who I f- who is interesting oh, because she plays roles in his films that I feel are kind of similar to Celine Lomez's mm-hmm. role in this film. Um, in Gina but yeah but it was his company he had started an independent company and so he funded Gina um, but then Cinepix would distribute movies for a lot of other companies yeah. and you know they were they were a lot like Roger Corman in that way you know so that the, the titles they right. distributed were often much more broad than the kinds of films they produced themselves like so they had a what I mean is like their roster of distribution titles was uh, more broad in terms of its range or, or subject matter or quality or whatever, you know, like Corman was distributing like Bergman films and stuff, you know, which is not and what, not what and we associate like with him. But Cinepix was very similar where that, you know, they did distribute art, art films, foreign art house films and stuff like that on top of whatever they were producing themselves. That's good to know. Do we, do we know if Gina showed in France? Cause I mean, obviously there's such yeah. a market in France. I don't know. Or, you know, Quebecois. I don't know. I don't know either. I couldn't find any. It's really hard to research this film, and it's hard to research a lot of Cinepix titles on outside of French Canada distribution, um, which obviously I would assume they're then selling third-party rights to mm-hmm. foreign. Well, apparently to there show was a films. version of Gina that played in Southern Drive-ins without the film crew in it at all. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? <laughs> That's wild. How do you make do, this movie? So, so it was a 15-minute yeah. film. <laughs> well, who does she I play don't, I have not seen it, scene. but this is this is like in one of the books I, I had read like a book chapter about, you know, just like Denis Arcand stuff and and this came up that it, you know, the person who wrote this book mentioned that they that Cinepix had cut the film and sold it to Southern Drive-ins without wow. that whole part of the story and it's like or at least you know i'm assuming they're in it as characters but they probably just cut out all the textile interviews the interviews and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah yeah so there was definitely an attempt to distribute it to other territories and cinepix was obviously not above trying to make it fit whatever 
the requirements yeah. of those yeah. territories were. Because whatever you want to say about like Denis Arcan and like you know having to make the movies that he that he was able to make with whatever funding he could possibly get, he made them one hell of an exploitation film. Yeah. Like the back end of this movie, when I watched it with yeah. my partner for another show I did, we had never se- I'd never seen it before. I didn't read anything about going into it, and when the final revenge happens, that like maybe five minute segment. I was holding his knee, he was holding my knee, and we were just silent. <laughs> and yeah. then afterwards, we sort of looked at each other and went, oh, my God, did that Did that just happen? He just went through the wood chipper? Yeah. Oh, my God. Like, it was, it was just shocking. It's a shotgun blast. I love when they throw the woman down the um, yeah. smokestack. Smoke oh it's amazing. Yeah, it, it's uh, it's Sam Peckinpah level. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Grandiose violence. I've seen this described as the Canadian straw dogs, and I don't yeah. think they're wrong. Like, I think it's pretty yeah. close to that, just maybe without the pedigree. Although this Gina takes a more active role in her revenge in this movie. Definitely. Yes. Straw dogs definitely doesn't no. have that feminist kind of bent that's for, that's for sure but gina was fairly early in that regard you know like i mean before this yeah. it had been like last house on the left and straw dogs and i think the closest you would get to women enacting their own revenge was often in foreign films the ones i could think of were like like um they call her one eye mm-hmm. or the swedish film or the jean roland film uh les demoniac but it wasn't that common until after like 1975 that women were taking the revenge themselves and it was like 1975 I don't know what it was about that year that would have changed things but I know Susan Brown Miller's book Against Our Will came out that year in 1975 mm-hmm. but it was really like 1976 and after it was it was probably 75 to 85 you know that you would think of as the key kind of rape revenge era um, mm-hmm. where women were getting revenge to on men themselves you know and not having you know like gina calls in the mob guys but she participates in the last two she's the one who basically gets the guy in the wood chipper like that's (laughs) that's, that denouement is is she's allowed to have it which i was very happy to see and i would say i have i can't think of an example pre-1975 of body in a wood chipper (laughs) with the blood spurting out blood and snow i feel like that's also gina may have like kind of made that the iconic scene that you see later on in horror well i know for a fact that tarantino is a huge fan of this and i'm sure he has held screenings in his little private you know emporium that people have seen i would not be surprised because yeah this there's so much in this that's like i've seen this in this movie i've seen this in this movie and how else would you possibly see it right if it's not that widely distributed Speaking about intense violence, I guess uh, let's move on to our next movie. So coming up, we're looking at one of the most notorious exploitation movies of all time. I'm going to leave it at that. That's coming up after the break. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great 
great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It was supposed to be a nine-day tit-and-ass movie. It was never supposed to be what it became, said director Don Edmonds when interviewed in 2009. It's an odd statement when, by sociology professor Lynn Rappaport's count, there are 44 torture scenes, but only five scenes that feature actual sex. The premise of Ilsa is pretty simple. Ilsa is the commandant of a small Nazi concentration camp, which is performing brutal experiments and torture on young women. And she's castrating the male prisoners of the camp after she uses them for her own sexual gratification. Until she meets her match with a young, blonde-haired, blue-eyed American POW. When I reached puberty, I discovered something about myself that set me apart from all the rest of the guys. I discovered that I can hold back for as long as I want. I still can. All night, if necessary. I guess you could call me a freak of nature. A sort of human machine. A machine that can set its controls to fast, slow, or never. And you want to know something? That never control just about drove her up the wall. But despite that disturbing premise, Ilsa Shewolf of the SS became a cultural juggernaut of a sort. It launched what looks like three sequels, a number of other imitators, and is one of several movies from 1975 that depict Nazi atrocities to lesser or greater degree of accuracy or sympathy. Uh, it's a movie that I had to take a couple run-ups to actually watch in its entirety. Alicia, Kayla, where would you like to start on Ilsa Shewolf of the SS? <laughs> um... Well, I feel like Ilsa has been a part of my life for a very long time. You know, it's not a... Yeah. It, it was one of those films that as a kid reading horror magazines and stuff, it would constantly be referenced. And I think as soon as, you know, I was a teenager renting movies on my own, I rented it. I mean, it was one of my earliest exploitation films I probably ever saw. Oh, wow. Wow. And so I think I'm immune to a lot of the st stuff that other people... <laughs> <laughs> a lot of the other emotions that are riled up in people about this movie, I feel, you know, also at that age, I was a gore hound. You know, when I was a teenager, I right. was an unrepentant gore hound. I was not the most critical viewer. I was always just like more gore, more upsetting, the more jarring or, or, or offensive a movie was, the more I wanted to see it. Um, and so I would have seen Ilsa during that period. You know, it's an interesting film because, you know, for anybody who doesn't know, it's about a character named Ilsa who is supposedly based on Ilsa Koch, the SS uh, mm -hmm. officer, no. but not really. And so there's a square up at the beginning of the film. And this, a square up is a thing that is like an old staple of exploitation films where they sort of give you some sort of statement that's like a moral statement of some sort that's like, we feel compelled to show you these awful images so that society never repeats these kinds of atrocities again. Yeah. <laughs> it's a disclaimer. Yeah. Never actually is though. You know, but it was it was the kind of thing that like so many exploitation films would have and it was like this false stance of of moral superiority. I'm shocked at the fact that it's listed under like Herman whoever the producer, but it's not. It's Herman David Traeger. Fried Herman Traeger. Or uh, David Friedman wrote it. Well, so, yeah, but David Friedman would have had almost identical square ups on many of his other films, you know. Um, gotcha. 
I'm I'm wondering if this is the only film which he used that name for. Although he did he did use pseudonyms. I mean, many of these guys use pseudonyms. Dave Friedman's career goes way way back. He's like he's one of the original like you know forty thieves who were like these uh, exploitation roadshow exhibitors. You know who would like take movies on the road and drive across state lines and go to carnivals and fairs and like everywhere yeah, and show wild. like like the silent show era. these exploitation movies and then get the hell out of town before the cops came <laughs> <laughs> um and so he has a very long and colorful career so he was so he is listed as the producer on the film and it's interesting because he's also listed as the only producer on the film you know so herman traeger is listed as the producer on the film itself but on like imdb and stuff like that David Friedman is listed as the producer and it doesn't mm-hmm. mention Cinepix as being anything other than the distributor, which in this case is actually not true. Cinepix yeah. is behind this movie a hundred percent. Yeah. Okay. Like John, John Dunning. And yeah. yeah, that makes sense to me. How Ilsa came about was that David Friedman had been one of the producers on a film called Love Camp 7, which came out, I think in 1969. That film was produced with the trio of Bob Cressy, who was a producer, Wes Bishop, who was a writer, and Lee Frost, who was the director. The three of them worked together, frequently making a lot of exploitation films in the 60s and 70s, until Bob Cressy was shot in the 70s, and then he dropped out. And then it was just Wes Bishop and Lee Frost working together. (laughs) Okay. As, As one. He had, well, he had a really traumatic incident where he, so this is a famous story. I do not know how apocryphal this story is, but it is a story that survives. Uh, and he saw a cop hassling a prostitute on the street. He went up and, and Cressy had this dog, like this big dog that he just loved, loved, loved. And he's, he's got his dog with him. And he's like, you don't lay off that woman. I'm going to sick my dog on you. And the cop shot his dog. Oh. Then shot Bob Cressy three times. And apparently Cressy was like hiding underneath a car trying to get away from him. And I don't even know if it was a real cop or someone dressed as a cop. I can't remember. But it was some kind of traumatic incident where, you know, he recovered physically, but he never recovered emotionally from this yeah uh, nor nor would you my god and so he he just so he stopped producing films he became uh very paranoid you know and uh and the remainder of his days were yeah lived out just in this weird like in a hotel room paranoid but lee frost and west bishop continued making films and they made you know so they made very low budget films with uh, bob cressy in the 60s and then by the mid 70s they they worked on the film race race with the devil and that kind of, you know, that transitioned them into doing more like AIP films, you know, so it was slightly mm-hmm. cut above budget yep. wise. But but in the 60s, they had made this film Love Camp 7, which was a Nazi exploitation film. And it's often considered like the first Nazi exploitation film. But it's very it's it's extremely low budget, much lower budget than Ilsa. And it's obviously kind of pulling from this tradition of Nazi pulp novels and comics and mm-hmm. things like that. So it's coming from a tradition that predates the Nazi exploitation films. Dave Friedman was also one of the producers of Love Camp 7. And Friedman had an interesting background in this regard in that he had been in the Signal Corps in the Army during World War II which is the department oh. that does film production and exhibition and stuff. And they would train people in film production and projection and all kinds of stuff. And so Friedman was not stationed overseas. He was back home, but he mm. was on the receiving end of a lot of the footage of the liberation of the camps 
Oh, oh so he saw it all. So, well, not only did he see it all, he swiped some of it and used it in an exploitation uh. film in the mid-50s called Halfway to Hell. Which, oh my God. which him and Kroger Babb, who was another uh, infamous exploiter, uh, they co-produced this documentary together that was supposed to be like a documentary about war atrocities, you know, like using this footage that he'd gotten. And they traveled around showing this film. And this would have been 15 years before Love Camp 7, even, you know. Wow. And this is, so this is a Jewish guy making this right. film also. Yep. Right? So Love Camp 7 then goes to Cinepix. They are the distributors in Canada of Love Camp 7. And they have minor success with this. And, But that was not the movie itself that like prompted Ilsa to be made because Ilsa wasn't made till five years later. So it wasn't as though they turned around and were like, mm-hmm. oh, this is a winning formula, you know? So <laughs> it actually was, I'm, I think, more likely to be the night porter. That was the yeah, inspiration, I was gonna say. the direct inspiration for Ilsa, because supposedly John Dunning had been approached by somebody from Europe, you know, like with the idea that like, you know, these movies are hot right now. You you should make one of these movies. And the only way I could see somebody saying these movies are hot right now had to be because of the controversy around the Night Porter that was swirling. Yeah, which is just for listeners who don't might not know the Night Porter. It's 1974, very infamous film starring uh, Dirk Bogard and uh, Charlotte Rampling, directed by Liliana Cavani. Um, we're going to talk soon uh, on an episode in the season on um, Seven Beauties, another Italian director who's taking on the Holocaust, um, female director. I just watched The Night Porter for the first time to prep for Ilsa. Mm-hmm. Like I'd watched Ilsa and I was like, I need some context to understand. <laughs> so I'm glad you're, coming from? glad you're bringing this up. I mean, I, I'm very conflicted on The Night Porter. I absolutely loved it. It's it, You really have to see it to understand what's achieved in this film. I, th- I think 50 years later, people are still upset by it. But that makes sense to me, Kayla, that it's more The Night Porter that would lead to a nine-day shoot for Ilsa, mm-hmm. She-Wolf of the SS. That makes sense. So Cinepix had... The idea, like, okay, we want to make a Nazi exploitation film, but John Dunning also really wanted a female villain. He wanted to make an iconic female villain. So he went to John Saxton, not John Saxon, John John Saxton, (laughs) who was a University of Toronto English professor who had who oh, made man. oh yeah he yep. made documentaries on the side and he had made a documentary for Cinepix about Stomp and Tom Connors right 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 and yes, it was guy. cheap and done quickly and it was it was a uh, it was an easy production for them you know so they liked him and uh and he said well you know if you guys ever want screenwriters I'd be interested in doing that and so I think this was the first thing they brought to him and said, well, what about this? Why don't you write something that's like a Nazi movie with a female villain? And so John Saxton turned out this script for Ilsa with also this with U a U of T professor turned out the script for Ilsa. <laughs> yeah. I record this one on U of T campus. Oh, really? Currently, so viewers know. Like, I'm one block away on St. George Street. <laughs> just, out of, just out of curiosity, how much of this do you think is affected? We talked about Gina previously about the where women's lib, quote unquote, second second wave feminism was at do you think that's an inspiration i saw them referring Absolutely. to ilsa as not a uh, not a woman's liver but she's definitely uh in that camp yeah. if you will yeah. um and then i also saw well we'll talk about this in a minute i'm sure she's now like a feminist icon in some circles which is fascinating to me like i interviewed john dunning literally on his deathbed it was the last interview oh. he ever did he was like dying oh, wow. in his living room connected to equipment 
And I had been sent there to do an interview with him for an award that he was being given. And uh, he talked very proudly of Ilsa. He was very proud of the film because he wanted a female villain. He wanted a female character. He wanted a strong woman. And he felt that to him, that was what Ilsa was about. You know, it was like in Mm -hmm. this framework of a Nazi exploitation movie. But to him, it was all about her. And it was all about centering female pleasure. And her pleasure is a key part of the plot, you know? Yes. Just Mm -hmm. so for people who maybe are not watching this film, (laughs) she's a commandant in charge of uh, a medical sort of experiment concentration camp. And and every time she sleeps with the male prisoners, she then castrates them the next morning so that they uh, can never sleep with another woman. And her pleasure is pretty... Uh, front and center like you're saying Kayla and uh, she's I'd say insatiable would be <laughs> I was just I about to say insatiable is the word I would use yes there's a lot of medical experiments on female prisoners as well um, you know syphilis is injected a lot of diseases things it, it's it's a lot it's a lot right but even I was just gonna say like the experiments themselves are also based on her theory that women are tougher than men so her yeah. whole theory is that they can endure more pain because she wants women to have higher ranking positions in the SS. For three nights, Gerard, and all this without a single cry, no man could have withstood such pain. She's the proof of everything in my theory. This is where I realize Ilsa She-Wolf of the SS has a lot in common with 9 to 5 and Private Benjamin. I was literally thinking Which that. Which was not something I this. thought. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, that's a that's a very funny analogy. You're not wrong. <laughs> yeah, no, you're not wrong. And it's but it's interesting because it's like w- when you actually think about well, what is the purpose of her experiments? Her experiments yes. are actually supposed to prove the strength of women because she feels that she's not taken seriously by the chauvinistic yeah. men in the SS and she she it's in uh so her motivation is to prove that women are tougher than men. And she proves it, yeah. too. Yeah. Because there is that one prisoner who is endlessly tortured. Yeah. Um, she's kind of like the lead character in terms of the female prisoners. And she doesn't break. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, we don't want to spoil the end of this film for our, our listeners. But, uh, you know, she kind of gets her own. It's yeah. a bit of a failed revenge. But she's a very important figure in this film. Yeah, yeah I do. I mean, I, I understand, Becky, like the question. But I do think she's feminist. I'm not saying this is a feminist film, but I'm understanding that this in the context of 1975, female villain, what John Dunning was trying to achieve, which I think he did achieve. If you know that going into the film, I think it makes the film a little more tolerable for people who are not initiated into exploitation and specifically Nazi exploitation. Um, and Diane Thorne, to me, is, as an actress, I find fascinating, endlessly fascinating. I mean, she's no slouch. Like, one of the biggest reasons is not, not the naked women. It's not all that. It's the fact that she is really, really good in this role. And she trained with Stella Adler. Yeah. So, like, same person who was training Marlon Brando and, like, one of the, one of the greatest uh, acting teachers of all time. Her on-screen debut is a short film in 1965 called Encounter that co-starred Robert De Niro, who was also yeah. a Stella Adler follower so I mean that's incredible when you think and then you know the 70s kind of comes around and she isn't getting the roles that she wants she's a very highly trained and accomplished actress I read that she has a PhD in in comparative religion that from what I understand that is that is um up for debate she (laughs) says she does but that is that is up for debate fair fair um but yeah she really wasn't getting the roles that she wanted in the 70s so like this isn't her first exploitation film there there are others that come before and she was a Vegas showgirl too like that's that's to get the looks and the brights she she's (laughs) I just love her but uh 
she, you know, she read the script and was like, this ain't good. <laughs> but did she does. She performs. She, she delivers. And this is a nine-day shoot, which is crazy. Sometimes feels more like a six-day shoot. <laughs> There's like, I think one critic I was reading was saying, you know, it's supposed to take place in Germany. And you can kind of hear the L.A. freeway in the background <laughs> at certain points. Like, it's very Los Angeles in terms of its setting. She is, like, I understand how this became such an iconic character. Mm-hmm. I understand how it spawned sequels. Like, this makes sense to me because of her and her, almost her alone and probably with with John Dunning also being such a fantastic producer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting with John Dunning because, you know, Andre Link's the business guy. John Dunning's the creative guy. Yeah. I have never heard anybody in any interview I've ever read say a bad word about John Dunning. You know, like, everybody... Yeah loves him and found that he had such integrity. The only person I've ever read anything bad about him from is Dave Friedman, (laughs) who's the (laughs) co-producer of Ilsa, who in his interviews, he talks about Cinepix very disparagingly and saying like, oh, they couldn't produce a phone book, you know, and how like he he says he was the one who found the Hogan's Heroes set that the, you know, because the film is shot on the set of Hogan's Heroes. Yes. So Dave Friedman says that, you know, he was the one with that hookup and he's the one who had that idea to do that and that Cinepix was always late sending money and that they were at some point asking him to pay the crew, even though he was a hired producer. And so he just talks about them like they're totally incompetent and he had to do everything. But I take that with a grain of salt because like I say, I've never heard anybody say anything bad about John Dunning and I cannot say the same about Dave Friedman. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there should be more about John Dunning in the history of Canadian cinema outside of exploitation. Mm-hmm. He shouldn't be just relegated to like that history. Yeah. Like he's an important, very important producer, period. And he made Elsa. Yeah. <laughs> I think this is also a good time to talk about kind of how this got as wide a release as it did. Um, Mm -hmm. Also because uh, there was a lot of X-rated films like Deep Throat being showed in regular cinemas. And this played in downtown New York, I believe, for a couple weeks. It played on 42nd Street for six months, is my understanding. Six months? Yeah, 42nd Street, like the the stretch that would be known as the deuce, where you had a lot of porn theaters, you had a lot of um, sex workers. Like it was a really important moment on 42nd Street in Well, but they also had tons of like kung fu movies and action yep. films. I mean, it yep. was all the genre films, all the all the, you know, what, you know, what people consider lowbrow genres, but all the genre the films, films that are not going to get reviewed by Vincent Canby in the New York Times. Like Which Vincent Canby did review this though, eventually. as well as a bunch yes. of others. He yes. was like, "Here's all the bad movies that are coming." Yes. And Ilsa was along with one of them. He did not he did not let's just say he walked out at a certain point. But um <laughs> yeah, 6 months on 42nd Street and it made a shit ton of money which is yeah I, I get it like I do get it because I think as coming back to the beginning of this episode where we're like if you say something is you know it's unfiltered it's x-rated you shouldn't be seeing it then that's going to sell tickets mm-hmm. and what's more 1975 the deuce than Ilsa She-Wolf of the SS yeah well I'm gonna say like it's one of those movies that like I will spoil it because I don't care she dies at the end <laughs> Ilsa does, does not <laughs> survive this film she gets shot in the head by another Nazi who's trying she, to clean up all the mess she she dies but that she doesn't stop back. Ilsa from not appearing <laughs> in two other like 1976 and I think 1977 she still has two sequels which is like Ilsa I'm gonna get it wrong Kayla you're gonna know it but Ilsa harem keeper of the sheiks harem uh, keeper of the oil sheiks. sheiks and this what's the siberian one tigress of siberia Jesus well, and Christ. that one's actually is filmed in montreal um and there's a whole oh, there's a hockey that. team in it 
Um, great. <laughs> that is the most Canadian of the Ilsa movies. But then there's also like an unofficial, like licensed yeah. Ilsa movie that Jess Franco made. Ilsa the Wicked Warden. I saw that one where she has yeah. like red hair yeah, instead yeah. of blonde hair, but still the same amazing 70s but haircut. Wasn't that one originally called Wanda the Wicked Warden I've... and they just dubbed over the name Ilsa in place of Wanda because they wanted to release it as an I'm Ilsa? I'm not sure because from, from what John Dunning says in his book, it was there was a license agreement of some sort between oh, okay. the companies mm-hmm. so yeah you would think so because the story is so similar yeah that you would have so to i don't know why it was called wanda the wicked warden in europe like if they yeah. were licensing the name ilsa why would they change it to wanda i don't know yeah but yeah uh, maybe because of the uk video nasty that they couldn't get they couldn't get ilsa in at all so like maybe this will slip under the maybe, radar uh, yeah, maybe that's a good theory yeah. but coming coming back to diane thorne who you know kind of has described the shoot as grueling, which I can understand, <laughs> yeah. uh, and maybe not so pleasurable, but um, she really embraced it. Like after the film's release and until the end of her life, which really was just I think a year and a half ago that she passed away, um, really, really embraced the mm. Ilsa character. Like she'd show up to com- uh, to like horror conventions in kind of you know very S and M garb. Um, we had I had emailed her uh, in preparation for the show. We wanted to get Ilsa the She-Wolf of the SS onto the actual TV version of this podcast, right. and that was a no bueno. Would be <laughs> like, it wasn't going to work. So we saved it for the podcast, but I had emailed her um, in her Las Vegas yeah. chapel because she was running with her husband, uh, her longtime husband, uh, like a, a wedding chapel where you could get married by Ilsa. In, uh, yeah, yeah. In, <laughs> which is amazing and Insane. you know got a, got a very very polite response from her husband just saying she wasn't doing interviews at this time she did pass away like a month later yeah. so that kind and of and her husband sense. who um, she met on ilsa yes one of the her jewish stars. husband yeah. her jewish yeah. husband who she met on ilsa that is and they were married for nearly 50 years yeah. which is uh i just yeah i love i think you know sadly when an actress or a performer passes away or an artist passes away like you know it just takes that for them to become really iconic and i feel like now that she's passed, Ilsa's only, only going to grow bigger and bigger, mm-hmm. potentially, which is amazing for a film that's nearly 50 years old. Yeah. That still shocks. It still shocks. Like, it really, I, when I say it was hard to get through, but I still really appreciate it, I really mean I had, like, multiple, like you, Becky, had to pause, go get a glass of water. Like, come back. Like, yeah. Come and there's back. a few points. There's a few points that I actually was like, you know what? I can't. I can't look at and this. And that's just like, us. I'm good. Like, we're, <laughs> but, you yeah. know. but it's weird because like I'm not squeamy. Like there's some movies that I'm like, OK, like Serbian film. I didn't make it through because I was like, nah, not for me. Not for me. So, yeah. Something about this one just really got under my skin and just started clawing. And I did not care. For I think it. that's so, good, though. I think that's good. Like, I think if. You know, this is very different than when we're going to talk about Seven Beauties in a couple of weeks. Like, what, what, like, what do you want from a film like this? That's the thing about yeah. Ilsa She Wolf the SS. Do you want to like come out of it and be like, "That was I learned a lot." That was fine. I was yeah, fine. or no, that was like, fine. You want yeah. you want a film that's a Nazi exploitation film that takes place at a concentration camp where um, women and men are tortured. You want to be uncomfortable. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm going to sound judgmental here. If you are turned on by this film, perhaps there's some questions you should be asking yourself. But yeah. people said that about the Night Porter too, right? So it's like uh, okay. I, I get what you're saying. I do get what you're saying. Although the Night Porter is a clearly far more actually intentionally erotic film than yes. Ilsa. Ilsa's eroticism is very cartoonish. There's a lot of stuff about Ilsa that's very cartoonish. Exploitation films, like, they tend to... You know, one of the things about exploitation films is that they exaggerate everything. They make everything into a worst-case scenario, but how do you do that with the Holocaust, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And this is one of the things, like, like, that people have been debating whether it's appropriate to ever 
try to depict the Holocaust in any movie yeah. because of that, yes. you know? Um, like even Claude Lanzemann, who made Shoah, even denounced uh, Schindler's List, you know, as yes. being yeah. tasteless and offensive and yeah. that this should never have been made, you know? So what do you do with a movie like Ilsa if that's the, yeah. Yeah, if that's the idea, you know? Um, and I think the only way that you can look at these films and like look especially at like Nazi exploitation in general is like the continued appeal of like the Nazi uniform and the Nazi rallies mm-hmm. and all these things is, you know, there was this author whose name was like Mary Elizabeth O'Brien who had written this book that was all about the Nazis program of enchanting reality. You know, mm, interesting. this idea that this reality was completely engineered to appeal to sensation and emotion and to hide the true purpose yeah. of what they were doing. And I feel as though exploitation films and this uh, conflation of like deviant sexuality and and fascism and all this kind of stuff. I mean, th- the reason why it works is because the very foundation of so much of of Nazi ideology is built on fantasy and enchantment. You That's know? a great point. Yeah, I was reading, um, no, Susan Sontag never reviewed Ilsa. She will reassess. <laughs> I really wish she had. But I did find an article she wrote in 1975 um, kind of talking about, I think she was reviewing a play that was kind of considered Nazi exploitation. And she pointed out that like if you just walk down 42nd Street or even like more high streets in New York City, you saw the kind of Nazi regalia like really in fashion. You saw it in not just in sex shops, mm-hmm. but like that kind of fetishism had become so popular and actually mainstream in 1975 that that made sense to me then that how Ilsa could play for six months, mm-hmm. you know, in, in New York City. And even I think Diane, I think it's Diane Thorne who said kind of explaining because when you talk when you find interviews with Don Edmonds he he just doesn't really talk about this film he just says like whatever don't ask me about it like I I got paid I made it whatever I I appeared on Green Acres and (laughs) Gidget and that's it Um, he was an actor before he was a director but Diane Thorne kind of in the 2000s said like you have to understand in 1975 that they really really felt that's what happened under Nazism and the Holocaust was far behind them that it could never happen again there was this like very this like kind of element of safety that they felt away from that history which we no longer have in 2021 mm-hmm. like we don't yeah. have I'm that like that's safety. very optimistic it's gone forever uh-huh she, yeah yeah it's it's naive mm-hmm. certainly but yeah. I understand the point she was trying to make that yeah you know in no way if you thought Nazism was going to rise up again would a film like Ilsa she will for the SS exist in that kind of cartoonish way that it did mm-hmm. Okay, then uh, I think that's probably the best place to leave it, maybe on an up note. I want to thank Alicia Fletcher once again. Thank you so much for joining Thanks, us. Becky. This was challenging, but I, I somehow had a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> Should I be concerned about? I think when you talk about these in a, an intellectual sort of way where you understand where they're coming from and what the time period was, which is what this podcast is all about, that's the way to talk yeah. about these films. The yeah. context. It's all about context. I also just love Ilsa's hair so much. Like, it's like if, if Vidal Sassoon no had like a Nazi commercial, it would be yeah. Ilsa, basically. Kayla Janice, thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me on and, and making me revisit these movies that I hadn't seen in a long time. So I got to say, when, when you mentioned you already had seen Gina and had a copy, I was like, oh, we can be best friends now. This yeah, I knew there was only one person we could ever ask to be on this podcast. And luckily, I knew her, which was good. 
Okay, and you can join us again next week where we're going to be looking at uh, one of RuPaul's favorite movies. Are you a winner, baby? That's coming up with special guest Carolyn Morissette next week. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoy the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Want to email the podcast? You can do so at podcast at hollywoodsuite.ca. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial-free, Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cam Maitland. Today's episode featured Kayla Janice and Alicia Fletcher as guests. Supervising producer is Ryan Mains. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Creative consultant is Emily Gagne. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next week. <laughs>